0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. Good, nice to see everybody here this morning. And so I'm going to give a talk about something I think you'll all hopefully find pretty interesting and hopefully there'll be a lot of questions about it. Um, but I'm I'm going to start it first by uh, prefacing it with a, a caveat to it um, uh, because I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm going to talk about today. Um, now that so that statement is uh, hopefully it's it's going to be very unsurprising as well. Is that you know while I've done a lot of meditation over the years, I've been meditating for quite a long time. Um, done a lot of meditation in that time. I, I am not enlightened at all. I'm not. Um, I've done a lot of meditation, but just I'm not enlightened. But one thing that I have had, or what I have actually had, is a lot of very, very powerful and deep and profound um, and transformative experiences through practicing meditation. And so that's in essence what I'm going to talk about today. These very powerful transformative experiences that we can get from something like meditation. Um, just for clarity and just ease of terminology, I'm going to call these awakening experiences. Uh, but they shouldn't be confused with, you know, you could, what you would call like, Absolute enlightenment, absolute nibbana, absolute—you uh, know—the full, the full, the full-scale arahat awakening nibbana. They're not to be confused with that. So I just—I need to get that clear. I don't want you to go, "Oh, he's talking about awakening experiences. He must be enlightened." I'm not. I hundred <laughs> percent. So with with that in mind, most of us. When most of us do start with a meditation practice, we start meditating because maybe there's something in our lives that we're not so so happy with. We want to change something about our life and our experience, so we take up a meditation practice maybe the more we do it we start to get into it a little bit more and we start to maybe you know read uh stories from you know the the life of the buddha or we might read stories of the, the sort of the great hagiographies of people like uh Ajmahabua or these enlightened masters and we hear these you know these great experiences that they have these awakening experiences enlightenment experiences and we think if I'm going to do this meditation thing, that's, you know, that's what I want. This is, this is, if I'm going to do this for some sort of reason, this is the reason I would do it. So in essence, what I'm going to be actually talking about today is well, what actually happens is once you have maybe one of these awakening experiences, what actually happens when you get the thing that you're after or what happens when you you get an experience and it's not what you thought it was going to be what happens at that time do you are you like are you enlightened now are you you know are you some sort of master are you some sort of guru are you an expert uh, or do you spend the rest of your life actually trying to get back to this one experience that you actually had so in essence, what I will talk about and what I'll outline is, you know, what exactly are these awakening experiences? Um, I'll also outline like how we can actually go about having some of them. Go about. I'll I'll talk about how we maybe understand these different kinds of awakening experiences. And the final thing I'll talk about is, you know, how we actually live the rest of our lives once we've had one of these, and how do we actually integrate these into our lives? So again, just to start off with, I'm calling these awakening experiences. And the reason I'm calling them awakening experiences as opposed to looking at them from a specifically Buddhist conceptualization is because when you look across different different contemplative traditions, different religions, different cultures, uh, different practices, different peoples. They all describe these kinds of experiences. Um, doesn't matter which tradition it's in, you know, obviously a Buddhist might describe these as an experience of jhana or samadhi, or might describe them as one of the uh, uh, levels of awakening, uh, you know, Christian might describe them as a unification with God or a... Uh, so there's there's many different ways that we can actually... Many different ways people describe them. Different terminology. Unification with God, oneness with all things, uh, ego disillusion. There's all these different terminologies for them. But again, I'm trying to simplify it a lot, and I'm just going call to them, call them awakening experiences. Now, the reason I don't want to sort of fall into kind of like a Buddhist exceptionalism is because so many other cultures have these experiences, and they're very, very similar. The reason I say they're similar, again, just again, another caveat, I think that they are very, very similar, but where maybe they differ is like the end, the very, very end, the very higher goal again. So, say for example, for a Buddhist, that would be the experience of uh, ultimate nibbana, or for a Christian, that might be you know oneness with God at all times, um, or for a Hindu, it might be unification with Atman. It's they differ in these maybe these bigger higher states, but the everything else it, there's a lot of similarity there. And the reason I say that there is a lot of similarity when you look at more of the, the, a lot of the modern kind of literature, there's been some really, like, really, really cool work done by, by somebody called Andrew Newberg, uh, David Yarden, Mark Waldman, um, and, Andrew Newberg's wrote a few books, you know, how enlightenment changes the brain, uh, your your, your uh, uh, God in the brain, and all these kinds of things. So these people have actually synthesized a lot of these different awakening experiences across these different traditions, um, and and synthesized them and sort of seen what are the similarities between them. They do all share very similar components to them. There's there's some similarities there they share that are uh, in the way that they're experienced, but they're also, they're also very similar in the brain activity with these experiences. So it doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist having an experience of jhana, or you're a Christian having a unification experience with God, your brain's doing the same thing. So they identified through this work, this really, really large-scale work of synthesizing these things, they identified These, what you call the four key components of any kind of awakening experience. The first component is that there is a sense of unity there. There's a feeling of unity, a feeling of oneness with everything. This could be like a disillusion of self other boundaries or, you know, a unification with the divine. And they found that this, uh, this kind of, this kind of experience is associated with, uh, decreased activity in the part of the brain called the parietal lobe. Same, again, cross traditions, same kind of brain activity. The second component that they found is that there's a sense of, like, emotional, really, really strong emotional intensity there. So, like, these very strong positive emotions of, like, awe, boundless compassion, boundless love, uh, Overwhelming love. And they found that there's like similarities in like the limbic structures in the brain, the, the, the ones that are like very, very uh, sort of in the middle kind of thing. The third component that they found with any kind of awakening experiences is, is that they, they have a sense of clarity to them. So a sense of clarity here means when you have this experience, it's like everything makes sense. Everything is. This is the realest experience that I could ever have in my life. This is all, you know, everything totally makes sense now. And the final component that they talk about, the fourth component, is a sense of surrender or a sense of acceptance. And this is associated with uh, decreased activity, like in the front area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. What this means, what a sense of surrender or acceptance is, it's like it's. it's Say for example, like surrender to the divine, or or an acceptance that, from a Buddhist perspective, an acceptance of the way things are. Things are this way. So we have these four key components of any kind of awakening experience across different traditions: a sense of unity, a sense of intensity, a sense of clarity, and a sense of surrender or acceptance. So. What they found from a lot of this research is obviously these experiences, they are very positive. There's only a very small amount of people that say they're not positive, something like three to five percent or something like that, that they're not, that are not a positive experience. But most of the times they are really positive and really, really transformative and really do actually change something about people's lives when they have them and so what this actually suggests is that if because they are so transformative that it this actually does change the functionality of the brain in some way once you've had one of these experiences so there's something there's something fundamentally happening there where you're changing your experience so so now we know what an awakening experience actually is and it's like well cool you know i, I that sounds awesome. Uh, you know, everybody wants to hear about these and wants to have one of them. And so, you know, how do you actually go about having them? How how do they come about? Do they are they just spontaneous? Do you have to put forth effort? Um, you know, is you know, once you have them, are you in that state all the time? What actually isn't? How do they actually go about doing it? I'll put the I'll put my Buddhist hat back on a little bit now. In that um, with how we actually have these experiences we you know obviously with from the buddhist literature we've really been talking about this these awakening experiences for a very long time and you could say across the different buddhist traditions even we have very different conceptualizations of what an awakening experience is let alone that our awakening experiences is different from a christian's or whatever buddhist's we're very different as well so a lot of the times with Buddhism how these are these are separated out uh, is we we talk about uh, sudden awakening or gradual awakening experiences now uh, there's been a lot of debate of these since you know since about the seventh century so i'm not going i'm I'm not going to solve I'm not going to solve any of that here right now um, but so there is two. Main these two main schools of, of how we think actually awakening experiences come about. And so the first one, the sudden, the sudden kind of awakening experiences, this is very much emphasized in the Chan traditions, Zen traditions. Um, it's even sort of emphasized in some Tibetan Rigpa practices um, uh, or Zogchen practices as well. When you go beyond Buddhism, you can look at look at some of the Hindu practices like Advaita Vedanta, talk a lot about these kinds of sudden experiences of an awakening and what they describe awakening actually as is that it's not something that you need to try to do it's something that is already inherently there in the mind you just have to recognize it something that's already inherently a part of our nature already there's no there's nothing for you to do there's no goal for you to actually get it's already there and so we, with these experiences, they there's a lot of reports about them, about them, and some of them are like fantastic. It's like it's like they're some sort of like spiritual super athlete that they just like had these like great experiences out of nowhere. If you look at not in the Buddhist tradition, but say for example, uh, Ramana Maharshi. From the Hindu tradition, he had this kind of awakening, just spontaneous awakening experience when he was seven years old. He couldn't move for about a week, and then he went off and he spent long periods where he couldn't move for days, and you know, rats and things like this would start to eat away at him. Um, even you look in the Buddhist tradition, the uh, Huineng, who is the like the founder of Chan, one of the founders of Chan tradition, who basically in the seventh century, who Kicked off the kind of sudden enlightenment experiences. Uh, he had one of these sudden enlightenment experiences, a sudden awakening experience, I should say. Sorry, um, where he was, he was just a simple farmer. He was farming one day, and he heard a monk a monk walk past him and was doing a uh, was chanting, and he had one of these awakening experiences. So, so we have. You, we can see we do have these kinds of awakening experiences and they, they're reported quite a lot, so it's not like that they don't happen. They do actually happen. But if we move to what, what we call the gradual awakening experiences, this is probably something if we're familiar more with Theravada Buddhism, we're more, more familiar with that it is like a kind of practice that it is developed over time. We develop particular kinds of practices and skills and we develop particular kinds of mind states and we gradually, uh, understand things about the Dhamma in a clearer and clearer manner. And the Buddha even talked about this. He, he called one of, one, uh, one way that he described his teaching was that it was a gradual training, the Anupubhisa, Anupubhasika. So, we're pretty familiar with this kind of note. It takes time. You have to practice. do a lot of practice. You'll finally, at some point, at some in this life, next life, whatever it is, we'll finally get enlightened. But actually, if we look, if we look into the suttas, uh, we actually see that there is like quite a lot of ex- uh, examples of sudden awakening experiences in the suttas. You hear all these stories about people, they just heard the Buddha speak, and then all of a sudden it's like... It's, they become enlightened, and the reason I have my computer because I have like one of I think is it's one of my favourite suttas, and it, it like it's so cool, and I I want to do it justice, so I, I actually want to read it because it's for me it's been one of the most powerful teachings of the Buddha, and something that I've used quite a lot. Um, so I don't wanna I don't want to mess it up, so I'm gonna re- I'm gonna actually read it, and it's the just as a, as a bit of a preamble, it's a story of uh, Bahia. And he was, uh, he was a, a, what was called like a, a bark closed aesthetic. So he'd wear bark all the time. He was, did a lot of practice, did these kinds of aesthetic practices. And he, but he, at some point he realized, you know, I'm not enlightened. I, who's enlightened? I've heard about the Buddha. I'm going to go and see the Buddha. And so he was like, well, I'm not enlightened. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I might die at some point. I really need, the Buddha might die at some point. I really need to go and see the Buddha. So he found where the Buddha was, and he went to see him. The Buddha was actually on alms round at the time. He was in the village going for alms, and Bahir went up to him and said, "You have to teach me the Dhamma. You have to teach me now." And the Buddha said to him, it's like, "No, it's like I'm getting food now. Like, go back to the monastery, and I'll teach you the Dhamma later. It's just this is not the right time." And Bahia was, but he was insistent. He's like, "No, no, 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 no! You have to teach me now." And the Buddha's like, no, just like I've got to it's before twelve, I got to eat, you know, I've <laughs> got to get my food, <laughs> got to get my food. But Bahia was just just incessant, and he's like, no, 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 you have to teach me the the Dhamma now. I need to know right now. So right there in the middle of the road, the Buddha gave Bahia this teaching. And again, so I'm gonna I'm going to read it because I don't want to I don't want to mess this up because it's so powerful, and and I don't have glasses and. So it goes, and a third time, Bahiya said to the Blessed One, but it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Well-Gone One, that it will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And then the Buddha replies, and then the Buddha replies, then Bahiya, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will only be the seen, in reference to the heard, there will only be the heard. In reference to the sensed, there will only be the sensed. In reference to the cognized, there will only be the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, there will only be the seen in reference to what is seen, only the heard in reference to what is heard, and only the cognized in reference to what is cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, or anywhere in between. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. And with that, Bahia became fully enlightened. Right there in the middle of the road, just happened. So this is such a powerful teaching uh, that I don't. Anybody that wants to read the rest of the sutta, there's a there's a there's a plot turn for the end of the sutta. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I would really encourage you to go and read it. It's in the Udana. Uh, uh, just look it up, the Bahia Sutta. It's yeah, there's a there's a cool plot turn. So I don't want to spoil that for you. So anyway, I'll get back on track now. Uh. (laughs) So we can see we have these sudden awakening experiences and gradual awakening experiences. And they can be both. Um, Most of the time, you know, most of the time we are putting forth some kind of effort to actually have them, even if it is a sudden one. Obviously, you saw there with Bahia, he'd been practicing for a long time, he had the experience suddenly. So most of the time we are putting forth a little bit of effort there when we when we actually do have these uh, uh, kind of awakening experiences. Now, obviously, they sound fantastic. You know, it's like if you know, if I could like I've read that so so many times, if I could have had like what Bahia had is awesome. This is this is this is what I want. And again, for me, like when I started meditating, it's like, well, I started to read these kinds of things and hear these stories and it's like yeah i want that like i i i need to have that like this is the whole thing this is this is this if i'm going to do meditation this seems to be the purpose of this thing that i want to do so i need to i need to have that so again so now i'm going to get to the point of well we know what they are we know how we can actually go about having them but it's like well should you have them are you ready for them what happens if you have this and it's not the thing that you thought it was so again making the preference I'm not enlightened but again I've had these very very powerful experiences from meditation and even though I wanted them that they can be really disorientating they can be really confusing because it's such a powerful experience You, you don't know how to interpret it you don't know how to actually sort of integrate this thing and to really understand it or what exactly it actually is. So now I'm going to share some uh, sort of, you could say, uh, tips from, from different contemplative traditions of how we actually understand these experiences and how we actually make sense of them and how we actually bring these into our lives. Because, you know, obviously there's no you could say there's no scientific consensus of you've had an awakening experience and now this is how you integrate this thing back into your life it's not there so we do this is this is actually where the contemplative traditions uh, wisdom traditions like buddhism or something can actually really help with these so the first point that i want to bring up about these if you do have one of these awakening experiences is that because they're so subjective and they're so unique. So even though across traditions there's, the, the, you know, there's similarities between them, they are very unique to the individual. So if you have one of these, you really have to try to make sense of them in some way, you have to find what they actually mean to you. And this actually is where having some kind of pre-existing framework, some kind of contemplative tradition, a wisdom tradition, something like Buddhism... Can really help you make sense of these experiences. If you find some kind of framework to understand the experience that you know that speaks to you in some way that you have an affinity with, this is so helpful because it can actually start to make you, you know, understand the experience a little bit more. So obviously, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm going to encourage you to pick Buddhism. I'm going to encourage you to do that. That's the, sort of the better one, I think, uh, for me. Uh, but for different people, it is very, very different. You might, you might look at the other some other kinds of traditions. It might be, uh, you know, other kind of wisdom traditions, or it might even be like a particular, you know, uh, indigenous cultural belief system that you might have that might help you make sense of this thing. Or it could even be something more like modern, like in these uh, frameworks of like what was called common humanity and things. The framework doesn't matter that much, but it can help you actually understand what you're going through. So it's not to say that the framework is the right interpretation of it, but it just helps you like get a grip on this thing and helps you make sense of this thing in some way. And building on that, when you have found this kind of framework or this kind of contemplative tradition that you can make uh, sense out of this, It's actually really good to do what actually you're all doing today. You find other people in that kind of tradition that have maybe had some of these experiences or something kind of similar and that can actually help you understand them in some ways and you can listen to them. So finding other people that have uh, within that framework and have had those experiences is really, really helpful. And in a perfect world, and this is so hard to actually get, is finding a good teacher somebody that is really really proficient at these kinds of awakening experiences and who can help guide you and who can help sort of reality test some of these experiences that you had it's very hard to find a good teacher but if you can find one it's you know it's it's the it's I'd, i'd say it's one of the most important things you can have because they sort of reality test you uh these with the experiences that you're having. So again, it's not to say that the framework that you have, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, common humanity, or the community that you have, or the teacher that you have, it's not that they'll always be right or that it is necessarily perfectly right, but it can really help guide you. Because as I said, these experiences are really profound and really can really, you know, unmoor you in some ways so these things can act as a guide or as like a navigation for you to understand these experiences. And so that brings me to the second point that I want to make up, uh, want to outline if you've had an awakening experience. These awakening experiences, yeah, as I said, they're very profound, they're very transformative and so you should, if you've had one, you should really take encouragement from it. Should be a lot of encouragement because it's, it's like something's working, you're doing something right, and uh, so you should take a lot of pride and encouragement from it. But, and here's a big but don't overestimate them. It's not like you've had one of these experiences now, and all of a sudden, like you're enlightened, or that you're some sort of guru, you're some sort of master, you're an expert. I, I, I'd even go so far as to say that I, I don't even think that you're a better person yet if you have one of these. There's still more that you need to do. You still have to work on yourself. You still have to keep trying to progress. You still have to understand something more. There's always deeper layers there that you can get to. So what happens if you've had one of these awakening experiences that What you've done is you've taken a very, very important step. It's a really good step, or it might be a few steps, but there's still so much more to do. There's still so much more to go. You shouldn't interpret them of like, well, great, I have jhana now, I'm enlightened now, so why should I do any more? No. Keep working at it. Keep doing the thing that you need to do and not sort of resting on your own laurels. The analogy i like to use here it's like just imagine if you're going on a trip across the ocean and you have a particular destination in mind and so people most people think if they have one of these awakening experiences they think great i've reached the destination now and what i usually unsuccessfully try to tell these people is that well no you've you're probably you're not at the destination but in essence all you've done is like you've got on the boat You've got the boat out of the harbour and it's like pointed in the general right direction. There's still a very long way to go. There's still, there's a whole sea that you still have to navigate. It's a really important thing to do. You've got to get the boat in the right, you've got to get it out of the harbour. You've got to untie the thing, get it out of the harbour, point it in the right direction. But there's still so much more to do. And so again, this is where having this kind of framework or having these uh, community of people around you or a good teacher can actually help you navigate here this is what these other things are for help you navigate that ocean to get you to this kind of destination that you want to get to so again we should take a lot of encouragement from it they are very powerful they are very transformative but don't overestimate them too much and think that they're something that they're not, and I'd even go so far to say as well. Like you hear other people talking about them, don't infer that they now have some sort of enlightenment or something like that. Again, these are these are experiences. They're very powerful, but what usually happens is we have this powerful experience and it's over. You go back to your normal life. You go back to you go back to well. Okay, I got to got to vacuum my room. Like you have to go back to these things. So so we should take a lot of encouragement from them, but they are impermanent, they do finish. You have to go back to normal. So what happens is they actually become more like a memory to you in most cases. But if you keep working, you can have deeper and deeper ones. But essentially, what they become for you is something so much more important. They become like a reference point for you of this is the kind of experience I had. So. this uh, this is what I should be aiming for, and this is how some way I should be understanding my existence. So this gets me to the final point that I'm going to make about this. Now that we've started to get a bit more of a handle on subjectively what this experience is, we're sort of understanding it in our own mind, we have to balance that out with how we live in the external world as well. So you have to balance the subjective awakening experience out with the way that we live our lives and the rest of our existence. What I mean by that is it's not enough just for you to have these like cool experiences and then just do nothing else in your life and not try to become a better person and not try to use these exalted mind states to improve how you're actually operating in the world. You need to actually use these out in your life and the way you behave and the way you interact in the world. And this is actually where I think, if we think about those similar components of an awakening experience, this is where this actually comes in very, very handy, I think. Again, if we remember, what, what is an awakening experience is made up of, of there's a sense of unity, there's a sense of intensity, emotional intensity, a sense of clarity, and there's a sense of surrender or acceptance. And so we have to think, well, this is the kind of you know, phenomenological experience that I had. How do I now move these factors into my external life? So you can think with a sense of unity, how are you living a sense of unity in your behavior? How are you having a sense of unity towards other beings that are out there? And and you know other, other species that are on the planet? How are you having this sense of unity towards your, your relationship to the actual environment and the actual planet that you live on? How are you having this sense of unity in the way that you're ethically engaging in the world? This way of am I causing other beings more harm or am I helping other beings? Am I causing myself harm and am I causing other beings? This ethical way that we have a sense of unity with everything around us. When we think about something like a sense of intensity, these very positive, emotional, transformative emotions that we actually have, uh, kindness, compassion, love, how are we using that in our lives? How are we using that with the people that we talk to and that we interact with? How are we using that with the people that we care for, our family and our friends and the people that we love? And then, But then also how are we using these with people that maybe we're indifferent to? But then also, how are we using this with people that we may never, ever meet, that we'll never know? How are we using these uh, very powerful emotions with the other species that are on the planet? Different cultures, different peoples. How are we actually using those sense of, with the sense of intensity, emotional intensity there? When you look at something like the sense of clarity, Again, you know, everything totally makes sense. How, do we, how are we using that in the way that's shaping our priorities in our life? How are we using it in the way we're making decisions, these, these decisions of how am I going to spend my life? How am I going to spend my time? Who am I going to spend my time with? What am I going to spend my time on? What kind of career is useful for me to do? How am I going to actually, you know, the, 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 the money that I make, how am I going to spend that in the most effective way? How is this sense of clarity shaping your priorities of the way that you're engaging in the world? And finally, something with like a sense of surrender or this sense of acceptance. How are you bringing that into your life? Are you always living your life through this kind of, I just need to accumulate more resources for me it's just about me, I don't care. As long as I get to drive this good car or I get this nice house or I I can have the thing that I want to have, are you still operating out of that or are you now thinking, well, how can I give up for the greater good? How can I have a sense of surrender towards that, something that maybe that I don't want but that is better for everybody? Or how can we have a sense of acceptance for the way the world is, that there's these kinds of things that happen in the world and how we we run into these kind of problematic and stressful situations and experiences and can I accept that and can I use that and can I live that in any kind of problems that I'm actually having or any kind of suffering in the world. So in essence we have to balance out the subjective awakening experience we might have with our external lives as well and again just because we've had them doesn't mean that that's it you know you have to work on them you have to continue to work on them you continue to work on them through practicing meditation more or your contemplative practice more you have to work on them through thinking of the way that you're ethically engaging in the world think about the way that you're being generous towards others think about the way that you're moving throughout society and how you're actually helping other members of society we have to keep continuing to try to improve at all times and live this awakening experience on the outside and external as well. So with that, that, that's probably, I'll probably Conclude it here. I, you know, if you've never had one of these kind of awakening experiences, I, I do really hope you do have one at some point. They are very transformative. They, they are really fantastic. You know, like for me, uh, I'm a Buddhist monk, and this is all I've got. I, 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 the other kinds of transformative experiences that you might have in your life, I've, I've never had a kid. I've Never bought a house. I've never got married. Like these big things that change your life for me. It's just it's just all these these kinds of awakening experiences from meditation. So yeah, I, I really do hope that you have them at some point. I hope you continue to try to practice. And if you do have them, that maybe some of these points that I've laid out here could be quite helpful. Perfect. With that, well, we might we might uh, call it a day now. It's so very very nice to see you all. See you all here and. Today we're doing something a little bit different. You're all welcome to come over and have uh, share a communal lunch. And I believe today we're starting the rice pindabar up again. So we will. I'll I'll be walking around with my bowl, and you can put some rice in it and say hello to me, kind of thing. Um, so if everybody moves over there and listens to the the committee that are over there, they've got a they've got a like fail safe system now. So it's just just listen to what they do and yeah. Uh, then so yeah, I'll pass it over to Adrian now.